This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to the Push Up Brentford podcast. Push Up Brentford is an oral history project set up to commemorate the last year the club will play at Griffin Park their home for 116 years. We have interviewed fans, young and old, as well as players and managers to uncover their personal stories. We have created a fascinating living history of Brentford Football Club, starring the people who have made it such a special place over the years. This project is run by volunteers, many of them Brentford fans and supported by the art and education charity Digital Works. In previous episodes, we have concentrated on the experiences of supporters. In this episode, we get a different angle on the club from some of the people who have worked there. Hugh Powell and Jim Levac worked on local newspapers and covered Brentford Football Club from the 1980s onwards. Alan Hawley and Marcus Gale both joined Brentford Football Club as youth players and built professional careers, Alan in the 1960s and 70s and Marcus in the 1980s and 90s. We hope you enjoy the many voices and stories you will hear. Hugh Powell served his apprenticeship as a photojournalist with the Surrey Comet from 1977 to 1980, before going on to work for several local newspapers from the mid-1980s until 2015. He covered Brentford Football Club over those years, sitting on a touchline come rain or shine, developing friendships with players and a love for the club. I served my apprenticeship at a local newspaper, which was three years long. And I'd never really been to a big football match, if you can call Brentford a big football match. And a couple of the other photographers said, Hugh, you go and do Brentford on Saturday. I thought, fine. They said, remember to take a stool, take your fishing stool. And I thought, what? Anyway, I got here and I had a tiny little lens like that. And there were about four or five national newspapers here and they all had big lenses like this. And I felt very intimidated by the stands and the noise and the excitement. And it was quite wonderful. And then I realised why I needed a fishing stall. Because it was pouring down with rain and you sit right on the touchline. 
And of course, all the professionals, or I was becoming professional, but all the others with their great big lenses all had fishing schools and capes and ponchos, and I had nothing. And I had to sit in the dirt. And when I'd finished the game, I was soaked to the skin and covered in sort of muddy gravel that they have all the way around the edge of the pitch. All the local photographers from the area, so there would be the Ealing Gazette, there'd be the Surrey Comet, there'd be the Middlesex Chronicle, there'd be the Informer, there'd be the Richmond and Twickenham Times. We'd all have press passes and we'd all meet down at the Brentford Watermans before the game. And for us, it was the best job of the week, really, even though it was Saturday afternoon. It was one of the few times in the week where you actually got to take proper candid pictures with proper action and proper people and proper life in front of you. And all of us used to just love doing it. And you could sit down, it wouldn't matter if it was pissing with rain, excuse me, if it was peeing down with rain. You could sit there for an hour and a half and concentrate on just taking pictures and practice getting faster and faster at using a camera. In the old days, I'd have to shoot anything up to 10 rolls of film in a game, in a big game. If this was a big game at the end of the season, promotion chasing or something like that, I'd, have to, I'd shoot eight, 10 rolls of film. So you'd change five rolls of film in a half. That would mean you'd rewind it, you'd mark what that roll of film was as it came out, you'd remember how many stops it had been pushed and you'd stash it in your bag so you wouldn't lose it and you'd have another roll of film in which oh I can almost do it in my sleep as you're watching the game and lo and behold as you were doing that what would happen is that whoever it is King Connor will come through and score as you're putting the film in the camera When this was in the second, what I th remember as the second division, it would be dire. But it was a sort of personal masochism. There'd be two, three thousand people in the ground. I mean, we're talking, you'd be rattling around like peas in the ground. There was there's virtually very Spartan facilities here. So on a knee, on a, you know, on a grim February Saturday afternoon with two and a half thousand people in the crowd playing quite literally, and I'm being honest, crap football. Well, it's not crap because these are, you know, good footballers, but they're playing on a pitch that used to be just, by the end of the season, mud. But in those days it used to be exciting because it was so raw. The lighting, the famous lighting at Brentford is so bad that a night game, particularly on a night like this, if it was night like this on a day that it's absolutely pouring with rain outside at the moment, driving rain, in the night games you used to just focus just in the puddle of light and you'd wait for the players to run through the light because that was the only way you could get a picture, particularly if it's raining. And you'd, all you'd have is this streaky, blurred picture. And because the lights were so bad and your shutter seed speeds used to be so slow, you were shooting at the bottom of everything. You'd just have these sort of blurred images running around. And then someone said to me, ah, oh, zonal focusing. I said, what? He said, just focus on the spot where the light is and let them run through. And that was it. I quite honestly would doubt whether if there was a player running down the right wing 
and the left wing ran into the shadow patch that the player on the right wing actually could really see them if they had to pass the ball across. And I'm absolutely gospel about that, you know, really. The light used to be so appalling, you know, they were playing by sound. So they'd shout at each other and kick towards where the person... Ah, oh, I can hear you, and they'd kick it over there. The, your editor would say, I want a picture of Stan Bowles on the ball, scoring. And I've got a picture of Stan Bowles coming down, be the Braemar Road side, coming straight towards me. And it's Stan at his best and photographing someone running towards you. I mean, someone like, a, someone like Stan Bowles, I mean, any forward is running not far off the speed of, I don't know what, an 11 second 100 yards? I mean, they're flying. And the trick of being able to photograph the movement as they come towards you with a very shallow depth of field and react to it, because players like Stan Bowles, any forward, probably only gets a minute, 35, 40 seconds on the ball in the whole game. When you really get a clear shot of their face, you get a clear shot of the f ball, you're looking for the decisive moments because there will be devices, decisive moments when players open up. And it's very skillful. And somewhere in the bottom of my truck, trunk, I have, I've got a picture of Stan coming towards me flat out and his, both his feet are off the ground and the ball's at his feet. You'd know all the players Give or take, they were changing every season, but certainly someone like Kevin O'Connor, I mean, I gave Kevin O'Connor a full set of photographs one season, just because he was almost a friend. Can I have some pictures of me? Yeah. Partly because next season he'd give me the wink and tell me where he was going to kick the ball. Um, Peter Gillam, the, mar the marvellous Peter, the gentleman Peter Gillam. I mean, I'd see him every home game. I'd come out onto the pitch at the bottom, and Peter would be shouting down the microphone, come on you bees, every bees. And then he'd hold the microphone away. Hi Hugh, how are you? And we'd have a conversation, have you had a good week? And then he'd put his microphone back up to his mouth and he'd carry on chanting to the crowd, getting the crowd excited, come on you bees. And then, he, and then he'd answer me and he'd go, yeah, you know, and we'd have a chat. Sitting on... The Ealing Road corner stand, I, uh, right, I'm down by the flag. I thought I'd gone, I thought I'd go for sort of some deep shots right from deep on down by the corner flag. I'm sitting there, by this time I've got my proper kit and my fishing school and my poncho and I've got a towel around my neck and I've got another one in the bag and you've got your camera in a plastic bag because by then you'd learnt all the tricks with rubber bands and you were getting a bit better at it. I think it was Nicky Foster. And as he came to take the corner, put the ball down on the corner spot and he just turned and he looked at me and went, top left hand corner. I turned and I focused up on the top left hand corner. I said, thanks Nicky, bang! And he hit the ball and lo and behold, it went absolutely in the top left hand, top left hand corner. And Bob Taylor, the big bloke came in, he was about six foot three, boom, doof! Nobody else in the ground knew where the ball was going except me, him and Bob Taylor. Alison, Bob Britain, Britain, 
photographing Brentford gave me access into a large part of a community which I really loved working in. So Brentford Football Club is part of a bigger community. The everything, the youth schemes, the women's football teams, really, really it's part of a tapestry of if you think of a local newspaper, the back six pages was was sport. And the biggest part of the sport when Brentford was when Brentford was a big club would be the football. And it let you into a whole community. It was part of the community. That's why it was six pages in the newspapers. It was important to people. People round here used to avidly read it and follow it. You could often be in local schools and you'd be photographing or you'd be reporting on a story or something and you'd be wandering along with the kids and you'd to meet the children. You'd say, who supports which team? Well, there's always half a dozen children that pipe up Manchester United or Chelsea and at the back there will be one little kid going, Brentford, yes! Jim Levac has worked as a journalist covering Brentford Football Club since the 1980s with the Middlesex Chronicle. He has had to report at times when some of the owners in the past did not necessarily have the club's best interest at heart. There's, there's been occasions with um, certain people who were involved in the running of the club where I have fallen out, probably irreparably. Dave Webb yeah. and Ron Nodes weren't probably uh, going to be sending me Christmas cards anytime soon. Without going into too much detail about it, there, there, were, there were question marks over the way he was running the club. Uh, and the same with Ron Nodes. Um, Initially, you know, I would speak to, to Dave Webb um, in his role as manager, and he was, he, was, yeah, he was a decent guy, you know, he knew his football, good pedigree in the game, uh, but then it sort of slightly, as he got more power in the club, it got slightly darker, um, and that was where, that was where a, a strong local press needed to step in and say, there's something not quite right here, um, and the same applied for for Ron Nodes, you know, and um, there were incidents with with both of them where I felt threatened, um, but it's my football club, so I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna back down, and I and I think I think most Brentford fans would would probably do the same if it's in their heart. Well, we stopped to a degree. I'd like to think what they were up to. I I had contacts within the club, who I'm obviously wouldn't name um, but they were telling me what was really going on you know I, I was called to sort of meeting at, the, at one of the hotels out near Heathrow with several sort of the top people at the club and basically Webby just said to me well, well, who's, who's giving you all these stories then and I just laughed I said well you, you surely don't expect me to tell you that the, the people who were giving me the stories were giving it giving them to me with the best of intentions for the for the long-term good of the football club, and that's all I was bothered about, really. Yeah, it got scary a little bit. There was there was one incident where Ron Nodes, I think, said he would, uh, you know, go go after me and my family, and that was too far for me. It was probably something just said by by Ron Nodes, you know, in as an off-the-cuff remark. But my wife certainly didn't think it was off the cuff. But you look back and you think, well, yeah, I got under their skin and that's great because it means I'm doing my job properly. 
We talked to two former Brentford players about their time at the club. Alan Hawley joined as a 14-year-old and played his first game as a professional in 1962, aged just 16. He left 12 years later after playing over 300 games. Marcus Gale joined the youth squad aged 14 and played his first game as an 18-year-old in 1988. He moved to play for Wimbledon in the Premiership in 1994, but returned to end his playing career with the Bees under Martin Allen. Marcus has returned to Brentford for a third time and is currently a club ambassador. When I was at school, um, we had a PE teacher. Uh, he saw me playing in the school playground and, and on the pitches. He said, I can get you a trial at Brentford, I'm sure I can. And at that time, I've got to be honest, I know it sounds rude, but I didn't even know where Brentford was then. And, that, and that's the honest truth. I was only playing five-a-side football in Shepherd's Bush. Friday nights, um, and there was a, a manager coach that came all the way from, say, Hayes. He had a team called Amaretto's, um, and then he invited us to for a trial. So we went for the trial, about four of us got in. So that was aged about 12. And after a couple of seasons, I think Brentford was watching. They had scouts coming down, watching our games. I think the scout's name was Ted Davis. And then that's when Brentford took me on, at 14. The funny thing about QPR, they had so much talent in the neighbourhood, they never once looked just over their fences to see if there's any talent there. They was always going far afield, and I was coming up against those players that they was picking. I was like, well, I'm better than him. But Brentford were the first ones to give me that opportunity. I lived in Fulham, and, and I used to get the bus from uh, Fulham Palace Road into Hammersmith Broadway and get the trolley bus down here. I used to train out on the pitch, and we used to have little five-a-side games. We'd do lots of running, lots of running, and lots of running, and not a lot with the ball. The present was, at the end of it, a game of football. We'd train for two hours, have a bath. As When I was an apprentice, uh, I, had to, I didn't go home. I, I stayed here for, for the afternoon so that I could get out on the pitch and, and practice. Monday mornings, it was get the wicker basket, walk it round to one of the roads across there, drop it to the laundry lady, come back, cleaning boots, making the tea urn and making it special because the manager's got a drink from it and you're not messing that up. Then you've got to get your pros boots done, pack them all in, a, in the, another wicker basket, get it on the bus, get it to the training ground, and then you've got to go and do your training and then press repeat after training and then you get home about five o'clock. We was never over blessed with kit or anything. We always looked like the scruff bags or whatever. I remember going to Tottenham White Hart Lane in the Youth Cup as well and they had Hummel, jogging tops, splash proof. We're just in our t-shirts and that was it. I didn't like them for it, <laughs> not the club. I didn't like the opposition, I thought, you flash so-and-sos. Let's look down at you, give you no respect. So the only way you can get respect is when that whistle blows, you've got to run harder, you've got to chase harder, you've got to shoot harder. And we went there and beat them. Phil Holder was a big character at the club. He was the, the bridge between the young players and the senior players for us. And I first met him when I was about 15, and I was scared out of my life. This little guy in his little beige Mac, Collars up, he come in at half time in his first impression on us. He come in and kicked the, the physio bed flying 
and everyone jumped out of their seats. He got everyone's attention straight away. And he's gone around the, chain, around the room and you're this, you're that, yeah. Are you a sprinter? I went, no, yes, you are. <laughs> and I kept running. So I was like, okay. So second half, I just run for my life. And sometimes when I look back now, you couldn't do that now as a coach. So for instance, he would come to me and my good mate, Robbie Peters, they was all good mates, but me and Robbie Peters are black, yeah? He would test how strong we was physically as well. So we'd be doing sit-ups. He would put one foot on and just see if your abs are strong. He'd do that to the rest of the boys and they come to me and Robbie now and go, yeah, put one foot on, you see how strong you are. He'll put two on us. We used to have him on our stomachs. But we took that as a, like a challenge, like, you ain't breaking us. I played when I was still 16 in the first team. I, I'd, I signed Apprentice July, I think it was. And, it, and in September, Malcolm McDonald came to me and said, uh, you're going to play in the first team on Saturday. And I thought, I, I can't believe that. That week, I played the juniors on the Saturday, the reserves on the Tuesday, I think, Tuesday night, and the first team on the Saturday. Really successful youth team when I was coming through that youth, youth set-up. Um, I think there was nine out of the ten second years signed pro. And we was all in tears for the, the tenth one that didn't make it. Final year was 1989 and the first team was doing well, FA Cup. And also the youth team done very well. We got to the uh, FA Youth Cup semi-final that year, which was you know remarkable being a, a League One club. Um, I made my debut October 22nd, uh, 1988. Just turned 18, um, so that year I played youth team, reserves and first team all in one season. I think I amassed about 65 matches. It wasn't about money, it was just about signing that bit of paper that said you're a professional footballer. That was my dream. Um, I think I was only paid £75 as well <laughs> um, a week, which today you're laughing at. I, I didn't even know what to do. What, what, how, how do I go about this, you know? Well, luckily, Jackie Goodwin came into the changing room with me, showed me what, what to do, where my shirt was. I hadn't known many of the boys in the first team anyway because I was a junior. Coming out of the tunnel and the crowd cheered, God, it frightened me, really. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I knew they, they were, you know, going to cheer, but not like that. You know, it was, um, it was, it was quite something. I, I wasn't a confident lad when I was growing up, but when I came here and I, and, I, and I had that first game against Barrow, I felt great. We won 2-0, and, and Hartlepool, for some reason, I think it was 4-0, I can't remember, but we had a super line-up of Johnny Brooks and Bill, Billy McAdams, John Dick, you know, all these, all these guys were internationals. And Mickey Block, he's come from Chelsea. Uh, Johnny Brooks had been at Tottenham. Me being 16, most of those guys were another generation away from me. Debut was, I think, about five and a half thousand. And I was shit scared. I shouldn't have been because I played in front of 30. But playing in front of five and a half thousand here, I was like, whoa, could I handle it? Because I know that the crowd's quite close. I was like, hmm. Ball comes out, I'm not sure who passed it out. But I went to control it, it's gone straight under my foot. <laughs> and out, I was like, 
long career, this, isn't it? Um, the second one, I got hold of it, beat the guy, crossed it behind the goal. I was like, mm, come on, man, you're better than this. And then the third one, I put it all together, crossed it in. And the crowd, from the paddock especially, they just... Rah! And um, never forgot that, that feeling. I thought, that's what I want. I want to make the crowd feel like that. It's just weird. I've just got an affinity with that paddock. Um, and it's because of, that's where I made my debut. I think I scored more goals <clears throat> down at this end here than the Ealing Road. It just felt the paddock was my half of the pitch to go and do my bits. It's like you're on stage in, in some respects and the lights are beaming down on you and everybody's focused on, on that particular moment when you're on the ball. It did get a bit nasty. I got, I got shoved into, um, into the dugout by uh, Mark Lazarus, who was playing for QPR. Uh, I, I, I never see him coming, and, and I, I fell and hit my head on the, uh, on the skirting of the dugout. I, I didn't know where I was. Jimmy said to me, you, you, you've had a bit of concussion, Alan. You, 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 you take it easy. Don't, don't do anything uh, drastic. Don't drive or anything like that. He said. I got home and, and my mum said, "What's the matter?" I said, oh, "I said oh, I hit my head today," and she said, "Oh, is it all right?" I said, "Well, I, I can't. No, I said I, I don't feel right, you know." So um, she took me to the doctors. Back then, it was about toughness. The tackles that were flying in, you know, the referees, if they saw a tackle going in on me, I would complain, and they would always say, the first one's free. So you couldn't do that today. So I got programmed into the first tackle. If it's a bad one, just get on with it, because the referee's not going to do anything about it. Uh, the defender's just getting his measurements on you sort of thing. possession we knew what to do control the midfield and then the whistle blew and we kicked off we kept control of the ball for the first half minute they were nowhere at all now look at us 2-0 down in the second half 2-0 down in the second half that happen then the story of our lives 2-0 down in the second half 2-0 down in the second half there's no Roy of the Rovers waiting in the wings they think it's all over when the checkbook sings at the start of the season we were talking promotion and where did we end up, as usual, dodging relegation? Just look at us, 2-0 down in the second half. 2-0 down 
the second half How did that happen then? The story of our lives 2-0 down in the second half 2-0 down in the second half And when they ask us Don't you get downhearted We say we enjoy a challenge And when they ask us Why don't you roll over We say nah side was boggy it never gets any sun anyway full of sand at times the goal mouths are full of sand um, I think players I always say players back then had to be more adaptable to different surfaces compared to today where more or less the same billiard table they're playing on back then you had firm pitches you had slanty pitches you had boggy heavy ones but the outcome was the same. You still have to produce. You still have to beat your man. You still have to cross it. You still have to score. There was no excuses. After matches, it was always a regular that you, you'll have a drink. But I weren't privy to that. I weren't really into that. I was never a drinker. Um, but that was the culture back then in the 80s and 90s. Is that afterwards it would be just normal that you'll see players with a pint of beer or two or a few more. There was one game... I think we played Reading at home. I wasn't in the starting eleven, so I, I assumed I'm just not going to be playing at all. Um, so me and a few others, won't mention no names, <laughs> we uh, went out, must have got home about four o'clock that morning, and then turned up in the boot room as the youngsters now were in the boot room. I sat in the big changing room thinking, I ain't gonna, I'm not even getting a shirt on my back today. And then number 11, Marcus girl, I, I was absolutely frightened. I didn't want to go out there. I played on fear for about 60 minutes before I got taken off. Um, I played all right as well, because I remember coming off and the, the crowd gave me a round of applause after I said, right, that's it, I'm never doing this again. I've worked too hard to be a pro, to get into, into this team, and then just toss it away by going out on a Friday. But again, that was part of the culture. We used to pick our wages up here uh, on a Friday and we used to come upstairs and get the uh, brown envelope and uh, the secretary 
one Friday, there, there was, um, do you remember Alan Mansell? He, 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 um, he'd been up for his wages and um, uh, I went up after him and they'd given him the wrong, the wrong wages. They'd given him my wages and I had his wages and I saw Alan on the, on the, uh, on the envelope and I just opened it. And uh, I had more than I was getting and I, I thought to myself, I know I haven't scored a goal to get any money. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And I, I'm all right. And then uh, Alan Mansley came up to me and he said, I've got your wages here, Alan. I said, oh, all right, mate. Yeah. So he knew what I was on. And uh, I knew what he was on. And he'd not long signed. So you can imagine who was top dog. I remember going up to Bolton as a youngster and there was me and another youngster on the bench, Robbie Peters, and we got told to warm up and you can start hearing some sounds. I was like, hmm, what is this? And then we got told to go out again for the second time. And now we can clearly hear what's being said. Um, I remember making a decision back then is that, all right, you're trying to disrespect us. So I'm going to make you respect me one day just by how I play. In the 80s were it was normalised to have certain languages or stereotypes around. Um, it was quite a silent one if you had to say anything or make a complaint. There was nothing to to report or anything, or you couldn't report it because no one was interested in listening to you. So it was more, more of, of um, just head down and get on with it. I accepted that at the time. Um, I didn't want anything getting in my way of my, my career. Yes, I could challenge certain players in there or within the game, but I think the mentality was, that's a bad egg, here he is, here's trouble. A lot of that still goes on today. It's more subtle, but it's still there today. It's very hard to explain. Some people might think you're making things up at times, but until you, you experience the black experience of going places or whatever, you'd never fully understand what it's like. And it can have an effect on players, for me, didn't bother me when I was playing. Today, yes, it bothers me because I work in education within football and it's my role to help young players be supported, guided. I used to like to go forward. I had a guy playing in front of me and, and, and he did. And, and he, he'd come from Chelsea, Brian Turner. He used to go forward and, and uh, he didn't come back. <laughs> no, I'd see him at half time. You know, he thinks he's, he was a right winger. <laughs> I said to him at half time, I said, Brian, let me get forward once or twice, please, you know. So he started laughing. He went on to play for um, New Zealand. I suppose going up was a, was a joy, but it, but it didn't last for long. Um, I had one season there and, uh, and then we were off out of it again, which always made me think why we couldn't, because we had all those players, all those players, all those names. We, we were playing some good football. Looking back now, I, I realised that these guys were getting older and, and they were dropping out and, and new ones coming in. Um, and, and the football, well, it, it wasn't too bad, but... I was, I was choked that we didn't stay up. 
Alan Hawley remembers the threatened takeover by QPR in 1967, when the very future of Brentford FC was in doubt. I, I, I didn't think you could do things like that in football. And I was, I was looking at the scenarios and, and somebody said that um, if, if they do come in, they won't keep many players. It was going to be uh, Peter Gelson, me and somebody else that they wanted to keep. And, and so the club here were desperate, desperate. And that's when we had the walk, the London to Brighton to London walk um, overnight to raise money and funds. Well, I was delighted when it when it didn't when it fell through. I, and I remember what, I was injured one day, and I was sitting up in the stand, one match, and uh, we beat them five 0 I think it was, and we slaughtered them. And I wished I'd have been out there, because it was it was really really nice to see that. Wimbledon came knocking again and it was it was time to go. I didn't I didn't want to go at the time because I was on eight goals playing left wing. I wanted to leave in double figures to kind of validate who I am, what I am, where I'm coming from. Like it just wasn't to be and I left with eight goals that season to go on to the Premier League. The level of Premier League from compared to obviously League One or Division Three back then um, was a good step and a big step in some respects. Um, I don't hear of too many players playing against Port Vale one week and then playing the rest of the season in the Premier League in your first games against Leeds. You've got Man United to come, Liverpool, Tottenham. I think I scored four. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't good. They weren't good, really. They're shambolic. But I, I, the, the, the only one I can think of is that we had a free kick about uh, five, six, seven yards outside the penalty area. It, this was a night game. John Doherty got the ball and I, and I ran into the box and he passed it into me and I just knocked it under the keeper. Yeah, I was chuffed with that one and I wondered why it had never happened before. Being away for 11 years and then coming back for the second part, that, that meant a lot to me as well. Uh, the reception from the fans and, and the staff and everybody. In fact, Martin Allen, he, he, he brought me back. And I think my first game away with the, with the squad was Stockport away. So I was just watching. He just wanted me to be humble. He was testing my character out, see if I was Billy Big Time or anything. So he made me travel all the way to Stockport. I weren't playing. Um, sat in the stands with the away fans. After the game, he asked me, he goes, is it true? Did you play for Glasgow Rangers? I went, yeah. He goes, you know, it's tradition that New, new players, they've got to do the kit. So there's me and Peter Gillen. He said, right, you two have got to do the kit. So I just went straight away. And then he said, no, I was only testing. I was testing. But that, again, that's part of the mad dog in him. Is that he was testing everybody, young or old. I got my career ended for me by um, a, a, a manager that came in. Um, very late on, I can't remember what his name was. He was, he didn't last long, and he gave me, um, he gave me a freebie to go. Yeah, I didn't want it, but this club has given me everything I ever wanted. I wouldn't have wanted any more.
I just wished I could have stayed on and played. I finished at 28. Really? So that's crazy, isn't it? 28. Brentford's not a big club in the eyes of many. Um, but I see it as it's my football club in terms of it's given me that chance to, to become a pro. Um, played a good amount of games before I moved on. All the ups and downs were here um, in terms of sort of graduating to get to the levels I did eventually get to. So if it wasn't for here, I wouldn't have been able to, to step up to the Premier League. Brentford's always been a club of, it's been a springboard club for so long. You get here, you do well, you can push on, you can springboard onto bigger and better things. I think the tipping point's coming now. I think the new stadium is on the horizon. I think it's going to turn back where players are going to think, I'm going there to have a decent career and stay as long as possible. This podcast was presented by me, Jatin Kutubali. The music was written and performed by Rob Johnson. The podcast was produced by Digital Works. The project was funded by National Lottery Heritage Fund and supported by Brentford Football Club. Listen to the full interviews and find out more about the project at www.pushupbrentford.org.uk. TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.